Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello again, and welcome back to my 70s TV childhood. We are a podcast which is dedicated to remembering what it was like to grow up as a child in 1970s Britain and to the important part that TV played in our lives and in the lives of our families and friends. It was a very happy time for me, and I know a very happy time for many of our listeners. But I suppose that for most of us, childhood is a very special time whenever you live. You have very little to worry about, and the days seem to pass by happily as you start to learn about what life is really about. As usual, thanks for all your messages, tweets and emails, We seem to have gained lots of new listeners over the last few months, and it's lovely to hear how our podcast helps bring back happy memories for you. It really makes the effort in putting together the podcast worthwhile when I hear your memories. Unfortunately, I can't name everyone who's been in touch, but particular thanks to those of you who've offered ideas for future episodes, and also to come on and chat about different subjects. I'm wading through all of your ideas as I put together our schedule for Season 5, which will launch in January and I can guarantee we'll be featuring lots of interesting memories and shows as we go into 2024. You can add your ideas to the mix by visiting our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, leaving a message on our Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter, or should I say X feeds, send a message via YouTube, or simply email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. I'm recording this episode on a Sunday afternoon, And as autumn turns to winter in the UK, with threats of snow and ice, doom and gloom on the roads and railways, I'm tempted to settle down and relax in front of the television, much as I did as a child in the 1970s. It's a bit difficult to remember what Sundays were like then. We mentioned this in our episode in February 2021 about the Sunday gang. Unlike today, where Sundays seem to be really busy days for many, Sundays were completely different. For one thing, no shops were open, so the idea of spending the day traipsing around a shopping mall, or mall, as the Americans would call it, simply didn't exist. Mind you, neither did the huge shopping complexes that we all know today, other than I think Brent Cross in London and possibly Meadow Hall in Sheffield. Even the metro centre in Gateshead, which seems to have been around forever, only opened its doors in 1986. And even if these shops had been there, it was illegal for them to trade on a Sunday. There wasn't as much going on for children as well. The idea of a Sunday for the sports activities, trips to McDonald's or parties in soft play areas, whatever those are, was anathema to most of us in the 1970s. For me, given as regular listeners will recall, my father was a vicar. Sunday meant going to church in the morning, then a big Sunday lunch followed by a relaxing afternoon. Looking back, Sunday lunch was quite a big deal, not only for our family, but for many across the country. I remember my mother would be up early to bring my father a cup of tea first thing before he went off to what was usually the first of several church services on a Sunday. And then she'd start getting the Sunday roast dinner prepared, which always involved roast meat, usually beef, although later she introduced lamb, pork and chicken into the mix, but I think that might not have been until the 1980s. The roast beef was always accompanied by roast potatoes, Yorkshire pudding, peas and carrots. 
all of these were prepared by hand, and the vegetables were all ready to go before we left to go to church, and the last thing that happened was that the meat went into the oven just before we left the house and closed the front door. How many of you had similar experiences on a Sunday? Not necessarily in going to church, but having a Sunday ritual based around that special lunch. I know most of my young school friends did something similar, although in quite a few cases church was replaced by the pub, at least for their fathers it was. And we often heard tales of fathers being in trouble for being late for Sunday lunch, and I remember vividly one of my friends describing how the Sunday joints had been burnt to a cinder, and how his mum had presented his dad with a charred remnant once he got back from the pub, before grabbing the plate from him and throwing the entire roast into the bin. Even allowing for my friend's imagination and exaggeration, it's just the sort of thing I imagine happened up and down the country fairly regularly. After lunch, my mother did the washing up and generally my father fell asleep in an armchair. I suppose he'd been up early and conducted at least two services by then, so it made sense that he fancied a nap before his next service in the evening. Funnily enough, I have no memories of ever having to help prepare Sunday lunch or do the washing up afterwards, at least not until I was in my teens. I think my sister and I were quite indulged by our parents. I'm asking you lots of questions in this episode so far, so so here's another one to add to that. In our house, the Sunday roast did for at least another two or three meals. Was that the same when you were growing up? We'd have sliced meat heated up in gravy on Monday night, then another dish containing the leftover meat on Tuesday. It really was the case of meat and two veg. And I discovered my wife's family did exactly the same, so I'm guessing many of you had similar experiences. Let me know via the usual lines of communication I mentioned earlier. For about the age of seven, I couldn't wait for Sunday lunch to be over, so I could dash to the TV to watch the recorded highlights of the previous day's football. Where I was brought up in the northwest of England, we had the kick-off match, hosted by Gerald Sinstat and the young Elton Wellesby which was the equivalent of London's The Big Match or ATV's Star Soccer in the Midlands. We didn't have much in the way of live football on TV in the UK until much, much later, so the 15-20 to minute highlight packages of top games were must-watch television for football fans. I used to watch it avidly, even if it didn't feature my team. And I have very happy memories of that show, especially because they often showed the goals from lower league games as well, so the likes of Berry. Stockport County and Tranmere Rovers also got their moment in the limelight. The TV schedules were a bit odd on Sundays, and always featured quite a lot of religious programming, both in the morning, when church services were shown live on BBC One and ITV, and in the evening, when the BBC's Songs of Praise vied with ITV's Stars on Sunday for the early evening audience, before the schedules gave way to Sunday night staples like The Brothers, Poldark, and the Aneedin line on BBC One, and Upstairs Downstairs, Doctor in the House, or The Return of the Saint on ITV. But what happened in between? Well, that's a memory I want to go back to for the rest of this episode. On Granada, the ITV franchise for the Northwest, that bit in the middle is usually filled by either an old film or by American TV shows, and two of these stick in my mind particularly largely because the contrast between me sitting in Warrington watching the TV and the glamorous setting and adventures couldn't be more different. The first of these started with an aeroplane and a little man in a bell tower.
Fantasy Island. The premise was a simple one. Various people were flown in the plane to a luxurious island, which could have been in the Caribbean or somewhere like Hawaii, or I think the details were a bit vague from what I remember. And these individuals were met by the owner of the island, Mr. Rourke, played by the former matinee idol, Ricardo Montalban, and his diminutive assistant, Tattoo, played by Hervé Vilches, whom UK audiences knew best as Knickknack from the James Bond film The Man with the Golden Gun. Mr. Rourke was always dressed impeccably in a white suit, as was Tattoo, and his role was to greet the guests and help them to fulfil their fantasy, as in the title, Fantasy Island. Seems reasonable, I suppose. It was also a bit vague about how the individuals who were going to live out their fantasies managed to get the chance. In some cases, they paid $50,000, but in other cases, they'd been paid for by some mysterious wealthy benefactor, and it was often hinted that Mr. Rourke himself exercised some kind of supernatural power over events. As the show progressed, this became a bit more marked, and it was suggested that he was some kind of ancient immortal god. But that wasn't the case in the early episodes, which are the ones I particularly remember. Anyway, the guests split up and go and live out their own fantasies, giving the show two storylines, which it switched around during the hour or so it lasted. Most of the stories were morality lessons, I seem to remember, and the guests who chose their fantasy usually came around to seeing that it wasn't really what they wanted, or they needed to learn a lesson of some kind to become a better person, or whatever. My memories of detailed plotlines are a bit vague, I have to say, but they include a rather dull teacher who wanted to be a sheikh with his own harem. Not especially feminist, that one. A man who wanted to be a French resistance fighter in the Second World War, and a Vietnam veteran who wakes up from a coma to find his wife has remarried as he was reported to have been killed. Fortunately, he has been totally disfigured and his face has been rebuilt by plastic surgery, so his wife doesn't recognise him. Very conveniently. I've had lots of people hurt by love affairs going wrong, a few cute kids with seemingly incurable diseases, and some light-hearted comedy plots, and you start to get the flavour of what the storylines were. I can't remember the outcome of most of them, although I do recall that the man who wanted to be a sheikh found that one of his teaching colleagues was in his harem, as her fantasy was that he'd take more notice of her. Well, perhaps I'm being a bit picky here, but wouldn't it have been a bit easier just to say hello over a cup of coffee in the staff room, or something like that, rather than pay $50,000 and be forced into sexual slavery on the off chance your colleague might notice you in his harem. What was that? I am being a bit picky. Okay, fair enough. But this mix of serious and not-so-serious plotlines made the show very popular, and it occupied a prime-time slot on Saturday nights on the ABC network in the US for many, many years. Mr Rourke, the mysterious owner, would often pop up towards the end of people's fantasies, and lead them to safety from a tricky situation, or give them a piece of vital advice to help them resolve their moral dilemma, as most of the stories had. Hang on, a mysterious, possibly supernatural force appearing, like magic, to help get the person home. That's Mr Ben, isn't it? I wonder, did Aaron Spelling take the plotline from Mr Ben, and give it the Hollywood treatment? Or am I straying into fantasy territory here myself? I also remember that my mother used to like watching Fantasy Island and often commented on how handsome Ricardo Montalban had been as a young man when she and her friends used to swoon over him at the cinema in the 40s and 50s. 
As a child, I found that inconceivable for a couple of reasons. Firstly, my father looked nothing like Ricardo Montalban. And secondly, it was hard to imagine this grey-haired old bloke in his 50s as a sex symbol. Obviously, now as a grey-haired man in my 50s myself, I'm a bit more sympathetic. Even though I look nothing like Ricardo Montalban either. The show came from the incredibly successful Hollywood producer Aaron Spelling, who, together with his business partner Leonard Goldberg, ran the hugely productive Spelling Goldberg production company, which churned out hit after hit in the 70s and 80s. Apparently, Aaron Spelling had pitched Fantasy Island as a joke during a creative meeting. He said to an ABC executive, What do you want? An island that people can go to and all of their sexual fantasies will be realised? The executive apparently thought that was a great idea, and so Fantasy Island was born, uh, without so much emphasis on the sexual element. The show ran for seven years and clocked up 154 episodes, by the end of which I had long abandoned it. I suspect the fantasies were getting a bit stretched by then. The series was also notable for Hervé Villechaise becoming more and more difficult to work with. He allegedly propositioned female cast members and crew at every opportunity, and also argued with Spelling and Goldman over how big his role was, eventually demanding salary parity with Ricardo Montalban, after which, understandably, he was fired. Villechaise died by suicide in 1993, apparently driven to despair by the pain of various medical conditions he was suffering from. It's very sad. And the end of his life was made into a film, My Dinner with Hervé, starring Peter Dinklage. Whilst Villechaise had many other roles, for me, he will always be tattoo, up in that bell tower, ringing the bell and shouting, Boss, boss, the plane, the plane! One notable innovation that Spelling and Goldman pioneered with Fantasy Island was that of the multiple guest format, and that meant that we saw stars like Juliet Mills, Peter Graves from Mission Impossible, Janet Lee, Ron Tarzan Ely, Britt Eklund, Roddy McDowell from Planet of the Apes, Ben Murphy from Alias Smith & Jones, and even Scott Bio from Happy Days make guest appearances, which I'm sure helped the show's popularity. And it was also another show following a similar format, which followed Fantasy Island in ABC's Saturday Night Schedule in the US, and also alternated in that Sunday afternoon slot in the UK. The show dealt with multiple guest stars too, following a number of separate plots over an hour or so. And, you guess it, this one had a pretty glamorous setting as well. Once again, 
The thought of being on a Caribbean cruise liner was a million miles away from slouching on the sofa on a Sunday afternoon in Warrington. It's not really struck me before, but it's so obvious that these two shows came from the same stable, and many of the storylines could have been transferred between the two shows. Exotic location? Check. Individuals taken away from their normal life? Check. Multiple storylines during an episode? Check. Some kind of crisis stroke moral dilemma stroke love story? Check. Wise advice from the regular cast? Check. Happy endings all round? Check. No point in changing a winning formula, eh? Generally, the Love Boat's plots were more romantic in nature, I suppose as a big hint in the show's title. And after the Jack Jones theme tune, we always knew we'd have an hour's escapism on the MS Pacific Princess under Captain Merrill Steubing, played by Gavin MacLeod, and his supporting crew, including the ship's doctor, Go for the Purser, and Isaac Washington, the barman who watched, listened, and was always on hand with some advice for the lovelorn passengers. We also had Julie, our cruise director, and the captain's daughter, Vicky, who, for some unknown reason, used to sail with her father. Life had style and the plots were pretty flimsy, but left you feeling great at the end when the Pacific Princess steamed back into Miami and everyone left the ship happier than when they first came aboard. Sometimes it meant finding a new love, sometimes a rekindling of old loves or a troubled relationship, and sometimes it was because a relationship had come to an end. Whatever happened, and sometimes members of the crew were involved with helping resolve the happy endings, the crew were always back in position at the end of the show waiting for the next lot of passengers with their multiple storylines to embark onto the ship. Both of these shows evoke a certain time in my childhood, of lazy Sunday afternoons after Sunday lunch and the TV football. It was a brief quiet time in our family's week before school and our normal lives kicked in early on Monday morning. I remember them fondly, not because of their artistic brilliance or memorable storylines, as they didn't really have either but because of how they evoke a happy time and place in my childhood. I hope they do for some of you too. Do you remember lazy Sunday afternoons when nothing was open, not even the shops or the pub? What memories do you have of those times? Share them with us on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com Leave a post on our social media or email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com Join us next week for another edition of our 70s TV-themed quiz, which may have a slightly festive theme to it given Christmas is fast approaching, or in a fortnight for our Christmas special episode. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and to tell your friends. Without you, dear listeners, we are nothing. Take care, and join me again soon for more from my 70s TV childhood.